When I was asked and given the privilege of speaking about Titus two, two and a half weeks ago, I was about to go on holiday. So I went into my study and I did what I would always do with any sermon. I first of all read the scripture. It's not long. And three things absolutely jumped out at me. Now, I've been on holiday, so I haven't prepared this in as full a way as I would normally. I've been down uh, Donovan in your neck of the woods. That's Gudrevi, overlooking St. Ives. And I've been walking the coastal paths there. Sadly, Rachel can't. She was in tears this morning, not being able to be here for six months now. We see the surgeon on Thursday. We value your prayers. But as I marinated, and gentlemen, if you don't know what that word means, there are lots of ladies around who will tell you what marinating is. As I marinated this sermon, uh, it's all in front of me, and there's a lot that will be separate from it, of course. Titus, a Gentile. And there is a paucity of material about him, if I'm honest. 14 references to Titus in the scriptures. Paul refers to him as a true child. He refers to him as a brother. He refers to him as someone who shared in the work and the toil. And yet Christian leadership is toil and work as well. There are great joys as well. And he talked about Titus as someone who walked in the spirit of Jesus. But you're waiting for those three pegs, aren't you? And these are the things you can hang what I'm going to say in the next 25 minutes on. And I think they have something very profound to say to you and indeed to me. And I've just found them so much a blessing. We're learning from disciples. That's the theme. And I want to suggest there are three things that were true for Titus and are true for you. Number one, we share a common faith. Number two, we share a common task. Number three, we share a common destiny. Faith. Would you like to define it for me? I was reading a brilliant book from an American apologist. Um, I suppose he was a, a guy that was talking about worldview. And he was talking about faith. And I want to start by talking about faith because right at the beginning, in fact, in the reading that Janet read to us in verse 4, you found the phrase common faith. Right? We share with Titus a common faith. Now, every time I stand up to preach, I see in my mind and in my spirit, I see literally hundreds and thousands and, in, if you like, millions of people that I've had the privilege of observing in worship all around the world. 
And I know we get locked here, and that's perfectly understandable. This is where we live. But I want you to understand this morning as I talk about common faith, I'm talking about something that pervades Africa, it pervades South America. There are even a few Christians in North America. And Europe and Asia. And we have common faith. What is faith? It's it's an idea, it's a word that actually we all literally understand and operate in it all the time. It's just that we don't stop and think. I go to the doctor, I have faith in him, I trust him. On rare occasions I've gone on an operating table and not asked to see the certificate of the surgeon who was performing the surgery, but I trusted him. This book I was reading makes a a really quite profound point that there is all the difference in the world in faith between believing that and believing in. Do I need to unpack that very much? Is that obvious to you? You can believe that and it won't make a scrap of difference. The devils believe that Jesus was the Son of God and it doesn't make a scrap of difference. Well, it does, but in a very negative way. So you can believe that. But this common faith that Titus had and that you and I should have is not believe that, it's believe in. I was a teenager about 20 years ago, (laughs) ish, ish. And I, uh, one of my, f- my first job was to be in a biochemistry uh, lab and become a biochemist before God took me on a different journey. And uh, in the middle of all that, my darling mother became quite seriously ill. She was one of the first people to be diagnosed. It was ironic because I was deeply into biochemistry at that stage. She became quite seriously ill within, uh, with uh, diabetes a very severe case of diabetes. That was in the old days when they used to give them protamine zinc insulin injections. And I I must be sensitive because there's probably people here who have to give injections regularly to themselves. Mother could never do that, and I understand. She hated doing it. So I became my earliest experience of being a nurse or a doctor or whatever, was I used to give her the injection. She believed that insulin was going to help her correctly to metabolize sugar and the Krebs citric cycle that goes on in your body and thank God it goes on. You don't know anything about it, but it gives you the energy and the drive to do what you are. She believed that insulin was going to be good and do the job. But nothing happened. The one day she forgot to take the insulin, combination of dramas, she was rushed into hospital. Because you don't just need to believe that. You need to believe in. In other words, believing that has to move to action. 
Now, I look at your faces this morning, and I'm sure the vast majority of you are well beyond the stage of believing that Jesus can save you, and Jesus can be a real friend, and Jesus can be the center of meaning and significance of life. But I can't assume that. Have you made that step beyond believing that to believing in? And it's a lifestyle, isn't it? Faith is a lifestyle. I've been a Christian for 60 years now. I remember when I first trusted Jesus as a 15-year-old. But all the years and all the experiences have had to develop that sense of trust. Now let me ask you a question, those people who have believed not only that, but believed in Jesus. Is he reliable? That's important. You know that in your experience, that's going to be part of your testimony, part of your ministry. So, we have a common faith. Right? Common faith. Trust. Still visualize my son jumping off the table when he was just three years old we had concrete floors in a very very post-civil war situation in Nigeria so I came in with my arms full of books from thermodynamics and kinetics and daddy catching just jumping I let him crash to the floor and said that will teach you to trust people (laughs) well you know I didn't do that. He still remembers the story. Faith is not only believing that, it is believing in. In fact, I'll go so far philosophically as to say, it's not true that you believe that something until you've actually demonstrated by believing in. You believe that with a lot of reservations, which is why you don't believe in. Common Faith. Common task. Now Titus had a very complicated and demanding role to fulfill in his ministry. I'll hazard the guess that working alongside Paul may not have been the easiest thing in the world. He was a classic cleric as long as lots of other things you could say about Paul. Wonderful man of God, not necessarily the easiest person. You wouldn't want him as your pastor, I can tell you. He was a hugely, hugely significant but very demanding sort of person. But whatever was true of him, he clearly formed very strong relationships with those who were working with him and working for him, and of course they were working for Jesus. I hardly need to say that. And Titus, as we say, have, and you need to go away and look at this, uh, you need to read the epistle, I haven't got time to unpack it properly. But he, uh, he, had some, he had a very interesting task that was given to him by Paul. And it was in a very difficult context. Because if you look at the beginning of Titus, if you want to know the sort of people he was sent to minister to, they had a reputation of being evil brutes, gluttons, 
and liars. Well, that's what, every, that's what the Greek philosophers said about Cretans. I've never been to Crete. I've flown over the top many times, but whether that's true or not, that's what the Greek philosophers said was true. And that was the context in which he was working. What was he doing? Well, he was finishing the work. He was appointing elders, which is a really interesting and important role. He was working in a very difficult situation with a very, very bad reputation of the people. He was facing sharp conflict. And yes, it does happen in church. It does happen in church. He was teaching. You go and look at the epistles. He was teaching the older men and the younger men and the slaves. He was teaching them to have respect and appropriate respect for the secular authorities. He was advising them to, and here's a big one for people today, to avoid foolish controversies. Christians have a unique capacity, in my observation, all around the world, not to be able to differentiate between their own personal preference and a priority. And if you think that's a bit sweeping, you can come and tell me so afterwards. That's my experience of life. Christians, not all Christians, often struggle to differentiate between what they want, their personal preference, and what's a real priority. I rest my case. You may disagree. He was wonderfully trustworthy. You've heard me say many times, if you want to know a person's discipleship, it's money, sex, power. It's the classic monastic issues and they dealt with them by chaste living, by living in poverty, and by living in, in obedience. Well, you may have reservations about that form of spirituality for other reasons. But Titus was a man who was utterly trustworthy, and there was a lot of money involved. Don't think they knew about MasterCard or Amex in those days, or checks. So it was coins and notes. Although actually, I'm not sure whether there were paper money in those days. There was certainly coin money. But he was trustworthy. What's that saying to you, saying to me? Titus had a task. I was flashing back to my Sunday school days as I was walking along the uh, National Trust coastal path overlooking St. Ives. I suddenly found myself singing that song I learnt at Sunday school sort of three years ago was it more like 50, 60, 70 years ago there's a work for Jesus none but you can do am I the only one who knows that one here I'm not going to say well there's one or two it's something to do with age isn't it of course it is well Titus had a task And he did it, and he did it superbly, and he did it well. Can I ask you what your task is? It won't be the same. None of us, you will never be called to do what I'm called to do, and vice versa. We're all different, and that's part of the great economy of God. But there's a task that you have to do. And I'm speaking to you as an individual. And I'm speaking to myself. There's only one John Farron, and I have to hold myself accountable to God for the task he's given me to do. 
Others can help us understand that, support us and encourage us, and yes, even correct us, because we're none of us see perfectly. What is your task? Well, it's totally controlled by your shape. I'm not being rude. I'm not talking about the issue of obesity or skinniness. I'm not talking about that sort of shape. I'm talking about spiritual shape. And I haven't time to unpack it because time is racing by. Your shape is, your spiritual shape is your spiritual giftings that God gave you. Your heart, what it is, what it is that really is in your heart. Your abilities, thank God for your abilities, you can develop them. They were actually God-given, weren't they? Yeah, you can develop them, but they were God-given. Whether it's gifts with people, or it's gifts with situation, or it's gifts with money, or gifts in whatever way, you can develop them. What about your personality? Now, I'm the classic introvert, as you know very well. You are awake. Good. But your personality is a gift from God when it's controlled by the Holy Spirit and used by the Holy Spirit. Not all of us are meant to be extroverts. There's a lot of us who are introverts. Thank God. And there's a whole diversity. When we went to the first church I pastored, the first young woman that I had the joy of leading to faith And she talked to me after she'd come to faith, and it was a complicated and quite a murky story. And she said to me, do you know what's kept me from coming to this church and coming to Jesus for a long time? <coughs> Tell me. She said, it's the guy on the door called, my kids used to call him, he was a good, saintly, saintly brother called Hearty Handshake Tom. And he was so extrovert that for this young, frail, emotionally damaged young woman, it was too much for her. Imagine she got past that, and we do have to get past the fact that we've all got different personalities, but God will use your personality. Did you hear me say that? God will use your personality, like he uses every experience and every pain and every suffering and, yes, every joy. And then finally, talking about shape, and I've been going S-H-A-P-E. You're with me, I know. He'll use your experiences. I haven't time to digress this morning and talk to you about some of the things I've seen around the world where people have been through the most horrendous experiences and God has used that to trigger ministry. Whether it was in the area of sexual abuse, whether it was in the area of mismanagement of money, God will use your shape. There is a work for Jesus, none but you can do. And if you look at what we read, chapter 2, and verse 11 following, this is what it says. 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives at this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Power doesn't rest in Washington nor does it rest in Brussels, nor does it rest in London. Power rests in God's throne. And a thing we don't talk enough about is the hope that Jesus will return soon. I'm 75. I remember when Rachel first got the call to the mission field, telling her, we didn't need missionaries in those days. I've been wrong about so many things in life. Because Jesus was coming back. And I have lived with the hope of 60 years that I will see him come to the Mount of Olives. Because if he comes, believe me, it'll be on telly. It'll be on telly. And please, do not simply relegate this central doctrine of the faith it's a doctrine of eschatology a doctrine of the hope of the last things as insignificant it is powerful I'm still discussing with my daughter she's still trying to get me to get my eschatology sorted out because she's of the persuasion that when Jesus comes he's going to take the church out of this mess and then will come the tribute I don't know the answer to that It's classic dispensationalism for those of you who want to research it further. But I do know that Jesus is coming. I actually believe he's coming soon. I sincerely believe he could come even in my lifetime. And I don't know how many more years I've got. And he's coming and all people will say, don't you feel, Rachel and I were talking about this, sitting looking at the waves crashing on the uh, beach at uh, uh, Godrevy. Don't you feel this place is such a mess? Beautiful. I know it's beautiful, and it is beautiful. Damaged. You look at what people are doing to each other. You look at the state of the nations, and you think, God, help us. Where's the answer to that? It's not in Washington. And I'm not particularly pro-Trump. The power rests in the hands that God still has his hands sovereignly on this, this planet. He was the one who created it. He was the one who set in motion the plan of redemption and the coming of Jesus. He was the one who came. And ultimately, he's the one who will come again. Time is gone. If you want to go and look at Matthew 24, I've got a whole list of things that Jesus said were the signs of his coming. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Go and look this afternoon. Go and look. But I was sitting, watching the waves crash, probably a little bit tearful and my mind went to two songs 
So we've talked about common faith. We've talked about common task. And we've talked about common destiny. And we may be the generation that has the unique privilege of seeing Jesus return. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation to take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then shall I bow in humble adoration and there proclaim how great thou art. And then another hymn that instinctively came. I do sing to myself, not often for others. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest for my soul.